C4. Uh, so glad that you're here this morning and happy new year to all of you. I want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online. Let's say happy new year to the online audience today. One, two, three. Happy new It's great for you watching in Ontario, around the world. We're glad you're with us. Well, it's a new year and we all know what our culture says at a new year. Everyone is supposed to make what? A new year's Resolution, that's right. Our culture is full of them. Whole shows are dedicated to this uh, conversation. Uh, all sorts of people think through all different things they want to do. I was reflecting on them, and uh, to me, almost all, not all, but almost all New Year resolutions have to do with two things, debts and burdens. Almost everything that we talk about is either a burden, something that we want to be alleviated from. It could be we want to finish school or reconcile a relationship or we want to do something we've never done. It's a, something on our back or it's an actual debt. We owe someone, hashtag the bank, most of the time, the credit cards, and we want to pay it all back. How many of you have made one this year? Small one or big? Raise your hands honestly. Yeah, okay. How many of you plan to actually fulfill them? Half of you, Right. See, I find it so interesting that in our culture, when we talk about New Year's resolutions, we want to make them, but in the back of our mind, most of us believe we will never actually do them. Well, the conversation we're going to have as we get back into our major series for the year, based on the Sermon on the Mount, is this. What we're going to talk about today is not a New Year's resolution. This is not a restart conversation. We're not going to jump up and say, let's do something new. What we're going to say today is this, let's do something old. Let's do something regular. Let's keep on doing something we've already been asked to do. Let's not make a New Year's resolution. Let's be resolute about what we've already committed to. It's interesting where we're beginning back in the Sermon on the Mount because actually we're now starting with what's called in the Bible, or at least in the subtext, the Lord's Prayer. What an interesting place to begin our new year. Now, Jesus' most famous teaching called the Sermon of the Mount is what the kingdom of God looks like in ordinary life. It's what the reign and rule of God looks like after you've accepted Jesus as Savior, Leader, and Lord. And as we've been teaching all year, for Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is an explicit outline of the normal Christian life, not the super Christian life, not the profound Christian life, not the one that's made for unbelievably profound Christian. No, no. The normal Christian life is actually what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's the resolution we all made when we said yes to Jesus. It's what authentic faith in Jesus over a lifetime will produce. And like I've preached time and time and time again, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom grow, and if spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation because they put you in the place to meet with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom will look like worked out in life. It is the ethics, it is the lifestyle, it is the thinking of those who have already joined the kingdom of heaven. Now, just before the Christmas break, the very last message I preached in this series, Jesus had just done something from chapter 5 to chapter 6. 
Jesus had moved the conversation from human relationships and our relationship with God, and he began to outline what we call kingdom religious actions, actions that form the kingdom, express the kingdom, demonstrate the kingdom, build the kingdom, are evidence that the kingdom has really come into your life. And what he chose to do is he chose to talk about the three acts of righteousness in Judaism, giving, prayer, and fasting. Now, we got through giving, and we got halfway through fasting, and then, uh, sorry, halfway through prayer, and then we stopped. Now, when we were talking about giving and prayer, honestly, many of us in our connect groups, when we got feedback, were really shocked when we really stopped to listen what Jesus was saying. Jesus started saying things like this. When you're doing the right things, when you're doing the good things, when you're actually doing those things that evidence that the kingdom is actually in your life, when you're seeing God do new things in your life, that is the place we will be most tested as authentic people of faith. Jesus actually said the greatest danger for us as followers of him is when we're actually trying to connect to Jesus and walk with Jesus because it's in doing the right things that Christians most often fall into the old ancient sin called idolatry where we end up doing the right thing for the wrong reason and we end up worshiping ourselves or someone else. It was Michael Horton who said this. I quoted it the last time we were together. We tend to regard sin as something that affects us when we're far, far away from God, like like the prodigal son story. But sin is far more subtle and ingrained than that. It intrudes into the highest and the holiest of acts. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.1? If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 6. You can turn there. Remember what he said in Matthew 6.1? Be careful. The second person of the Trinity, when he says be careful, we need to be careful. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he says this when he was talking about prayer. And not if, but when you pray... Don't be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, you go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret, He will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, this isn't saying you can never pray in public, and this isn't saying you can't use many words to talk to God. Jesus kept asking the question, why are you doing what you're doing? If you're doing it to get the attention of others, if you're doing it to play manipulation with God, then your prayer life has amounted to nothing. See, last time we were together, he actually exposed the prayer life of deeply religious good people praying for wrong reasons. He also showed us the, holy, the hollowness of pagan prayers, trying to draw down gods, manipulate gods, and play gods off each other. And Jesus says, look, in my Father's kingdom, there is no room for prayer lives like this. He said, that's how you should never pray in my kingdom. So this is how you should pray. Now, I want to say this up front because this is a very familiar passage to most of us. I even preached on it in the summer. But let me just say this to start off. Jesus simply says, 
kingdom prayer, eternal prayer, prayer that is righteous and holy, prayer that is accepted by God, always is God-centered prayer first. It is not preoccupied with you primarily. And second of all, it's informed prayer. It's thoughtful prayer. It's life-changing prayer. It's trusting prayer. It's informed prayer. It's theological prayer. It's relational prayer. It's not just a bunch of words. Jesus says, okay, if you're part of my father's kingdom, if you're part of my dad's kingdom, if you want the kingdom to keep coming, then this is how you should pray. Our father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. And if you want to be King James about it, right? For thine is the what? The kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. Our Father. When I preached in this in the summer, this really struck home. Let me do it again. Jesus says our conversation with God begins with the phrase, our Father. Jesus in the book of Matthew says that God was his Father 14 times. And now amazingly, he says, if you know me, you get to call him Father too. We are invited into the same relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Now, when you start this prayer, our Father, that means you already have relationship with him because not everyone on earth has God as their Father. This prayer is given to those who are members of the kingdom. This is why, by the way, we never want this prayer ever back in schools again. We don't ever want this prayer said by people who don't know the Father through Jesus because this is a prayer given to those who are part of what? The kingdom. Our Father... The prayer is relational. And how do we gain relationship with the Father? Only through the one who's teaching us to pray this. Only those that have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord ever know God as Father since Jesus is the only one that shows us the Father, makes us right with the Father, keeps us in the Father's presence, and doesn't let us die in his holiness because he covers us. See, when you understand that, then John 14, 6 is is even more powerful. I am the way, Jesus said, and I am the truth, and, and I am the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only access to God because Jesus is God. And if you want to know who God is, you have to look at Jesus because he reveals the Father. Do you see how different this is from the prayer lives Jesus just said were wrong? The prayer reminds us right up front that God is God and we're not. And it also reminds us at his core, God is not a distant God, but a relational God. As I've preached before, let me do it again. Father is a name. Father is not about the maleness of God. God doesn't have a penis. That's not the conversation happening here. So many people get caught up in this place and then they never move on. Father is a name like Yahweh or or Jesus. Now for many of us sitting here and many of you online, the image of a father is unbelievably difficult because our fathers either weren't there or maybe they died or maybe they weren't the fathers that they were called to be in our life because they were broken or they were just terrible. And so when we try approaching God and this name is invoked, 
the pain and the fear and the damage that we emotively experience is real and should not be avoided. But let me say this this morning. This name cannot be changed because it's a name of God. If you change the name of God, you end up worshiping a different deity. What we need to say as we start the new year is this. The fatherhood of God doesn't need to be thrown out in the church. It needs to be redeemed in our lives. We need God to step into the brokenness of this church and our culture and say, actually, there is one who still is a good dad. But don't change the name because it's revealed. I quoted this on Christmas Eve, but let me give you the full one. In the Hebrew Scriptures, normally God is depicted not as a father of an individual, but the father of Israel, a nation, And pious, good Orthodox Jews, deeply aware of the gap between a holy God and sinful human beings, never dared address God personally as Father or in Aramaic, what Jesus calls him, Daddy or Dear Father. Now, when Jesus came on the scene and started teaching, he shocked so many people, including in the Sermon on the Mount, when he started referring to God as his dad. And then he invited all these other people who were all sinful and tax collectors and prostitutes and Pharisees and says, oh, by the way, you can call him father too. Now, rather than depicting God as that typical Middle Eastern patriarch who wielded considerable power within the family, he suddenly depicts God primarily as a tender and compassionate father who extends grace both to sinners and self-righteous people. See, God is Father. God the Father is personal. God the Father is tender. God the Father is good. God the Father is grace. God the Father is close. God the Father is holy. And since God the Father is holy, He never makes a wrong move. The most powerful, most jaw-dropping, the most life-changing expression of this, of course, is when Jesus was using parables that are stories to reveal God's truth. And in Luke 17, he tell, 15, he tells the story of the prodigal son. Most of you know it. There was a young adult or a teenager who went to his dad and said, Dad, I hate you. I wish you were dead. Give me your money. And the father was brokenhearted and gave him his inheritance. And the son went off to the Las Vegas of his day, right, and had sex with everything that moved, had a blast, got high, got drunk, wild living, the Bible says, and suddenly his money ran out. And when his money ran out, things haven't changed. Suddenly all his friends disappeared. And then there was a famine in the land, and this young adult Jewish guy ends up doing something unthinkable. He's actually feeding pigs. If you know your Old Testament, you know how despicable this is. And it says in the scriptures that he was starving to death. I love how the message gets this in Luke 15, 17. That brought him to his senses. You betcha. And he said, all those farmhands working for my father, they sit down three meals a day and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. And I say to him, father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. So you just take me on as a hired hand. So he got right up and he went home to his father. Notice he never loses relationship. He's always still father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
His father's heart was pounding. He ran out, he embraced him, he kissed him, and the son started the speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. If the passage stopped there, we'd think he was about to take out his son. But no. He was calling his servants, quick, quick, right now, bring a clean set of clothes, dress him, put the family ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, get the grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast. This is like saying we're having the best buffet. You think Christmas was good? Watch out. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead. He's now alive, given up for lost. He is now found. Now, when you know this passage well, this is what you learn. God is the Father in this passage. And this is what Jesus is revealing to us. God the Father runs not to take you out, but to embrace you, to guard you, to forgive you, to lift shame off you. God welcomes you. God the Father guards you from yourself and others. See, God's love is unconditional. That is, it is open to all. But it is only experienced conditionally when you come to him and repent and trust in the one he sent, his son. This prayer also reminds us where our great God is. God the Father is in that space and in that environment that we call heaven. And when we pray kingdom prayers, because remember, Jesus is teaching us how to pray as members of his kingdom. When we prayed this morning, when we do this, we draw near to God himself and we enter into the place where angels fear to tread. Every time we prayed, when we prayed over the offering this morning, when we pray over our meal, when we hang out in connect group and we pray, we enter into the holy place of God that if you did not have the covering of Jesus, you would be struck dead in a second. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, like I preached in the summer and I preached even last year, let me remind you once again what that environment when we pray actually looks like. It's found in Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation 4, well, 3, 4, and 5, it says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. But here's the environment that we have access to as members of the kingdom. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. That's why we sang that song today. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they said, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, honor, glory, and praise. Every time we gather on a Sunday in either service or in the evening, every time you do your devotions, every time we as Christians personally or corporately pray, that is what we walk into time and time again. And like I've preached before, let me do it again. This is not metaphor. This is not poetic license. This is reality. When we pray, we enter into the Father's holy presence with all the angels that stayed loyal to him, with all those that have already died who are found in Jesus, and we enter into that place and we get to know him. Do not underestimate this gift because billions of people on earth don't have this like you take for granted every time you pray over a meal. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, this is why kingdom prayer is so antithetical to religion. 
This is why kingdom prayer is so different than the pagan chants of so many others who are trying to down a deity they'll never know. Hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy with all your angels, with all those already in your presence, with all those who are loyal to you around the world. We cry out, you and you and you alone and never us. You get to be treated with the highest honor. We don't ever want to touch what isn't ours. Did you notice too, like I preached in the summer, it starts with imminence. God, through this prayer, allows us to draw close and know the fatherhood of God. And he gives us something that our culture is desperate for. He gives us relational security. The imminence of the prayer brings you this close because we get to know God as Abba. And then suddenly we're moved into transcendence, right into the grandeur of God. Imagine like being in a connect group and then walking into one of the greatest cathedrals in Europe. This is what happens in this prayer. There's this great imminence and then this great transcendence. And we begin to pray this sincerely. We don't want to be lifted up. You need to be lifted up. We are not God. We're not made to be God. There's no one greater than God. And we, this prayer really is saying this, with joy and with gratitude and with hope, I am so excited I am not God. I am so relieved I don't need to be God. I am so excited to give my respect and love and adoration and my money and my time and everything I am back to you. I am devoted to you. No one else or nothing else in my whole life should ever be worshipped except you. It's actually agreeing with that great cry out of Isaiah where God says, I will not share my glory with another. We'll do it. Do you see how different this is from the prayers that Jesus was confronting? Where you're praying so much so people are impressed with your words or you're praying strategically so people can know how, no, no, don't you understand? Real prayer, prayer that lasts, prayer that ripples into eternity starts with hallowed be your name. And then, and then it happens. This prayer asks for the invocation of the impossible. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This prayer is the basis not only of our yearly theme. It's the basis of everything we are as Christians. What's the kingdom of God? We've learned it a thousand times. The kingdom of God is any place or space where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, and accepted through the person and work of Jesus. And since we are Christians, if you are one, you are a member of God's kingdom because you accepted Jesus as Savior and King. And so this prayer is saying this. In 2015, I want more of Jesus, more of the Father, and want more of everything that he is about and what he's doing. I want your kingdom down here. And then the next words are actually the more terrifying and the more joy-giving. And I want your will down here as it's already playing out up there in the atmosphere you call heaven. And as I've preached before, let me do it again. When you, when I, when we pray this very simple prayer, it is so unbelievably freeing and terrifying because here's what we're saying. God, your kingdom come and your will be done. I don't want to lead my life. I want you to be in charge of my life. I'm laying down everything to Jesus and I'm willingly conforming and admitting that I am no longer in charge in any way. 
It's what Paul said in Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you reap, the benefits you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And I know I've spent so much time preaching on this, but it's a great thing to start the new year on. And here it is. We are slaves to the Father through Jesus. We are not our own. We've been bought by a high price. Obedience is the key to liberation. True freedom comes from true slavery. We have to live with this all-consuming perspective that we are slaves to Jesus. And, we, and if we don't live with this perspective and we don't know the love of God. See, do you notice it? God calls himself Father and allows us to know him. He also comes close and reassures us. And then he reminds us of his loving ownership in that order. And once that begins to work out in the life of our church, if we do this, then we will live real radical lives. Authenticity will mark our church. Powerless Christian lives and cheap versions of our faith will eventually fall away. But this is what the prayer is really saying. God, I want you in my thinking. I don't want you to think for, I want you and your perspective to shape how I think about everything. I want you, I willingly invite you into my money. I invite you into my sex and sexuality. I invite you into my relationships. I invite you into my business. I invite you into my family. I invite you willingly into this church. I invite you into my dreams and my future. I don't own my house. Some of you are like, the bank does. Don't worry about it. Okay. But I invite you into my house. And I don't own my house anymore. And actually, I don't even own my life. And actually, I don't own my money or my savings or my furniture or my kids or my spouse or my friends or my dreams or my wants or my futures. It's all for you now, God, anyway. You're a better master than I would have ever been. So your will be done with all of that, everything that makes up me down here as you're working it out up there. See, here's the point. Many of us love him, but many of us don't trust him. He says, your kingdom come and and your will be done down in everything that makes us up because you know what? You're good and you're a good dad. So we're going to trust you with all this. And of course, if that's true, you immediately move to the next thing called daily bread. God, provide my physical needs, my emotional needs, my relational needs, my spiritual needs. This, of course, has the roots of the Old Testament. Israel's wandering for 40 years, no access to water or to food for over a million people. And every day, God miraculously shows up as a good father and provides exactly what they need. Now, he doesn't give them all the bells and whistles. He only sends manna. It's not that great tasting, but that's what they get. Deuteronomy 8.2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness those 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors had known to teach you that man, women, humans don't live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in Jesus' time, too, don't forget, no refrigerators, no, no refrigerators, nothing. And so since that was true, bread, of course, was daily. There was no loblaws. You went and bought your stuff every day. And Jesus says, every day in kingdom prayer, You are supposed to come and say, God, I need manna today. 
I need to talk to you about clothing and shelter and life issues and godliness and what I'm facing today. And again, this prayer simply confronts the idea that I'm the master of my destiny. I can deal with my life on my own. I can run my family or this church by myself. This prayer actually confronts self-trust, self-sufficiency, and says utter dependence on God for salvation, life, godliness, everything. This is actually where you talk with God through the good, the bad, the terrible, and the exciting you're going to face that day. And oh, notice, it's just today. It's not a long conversation about history, though important, and it's not a whole-consuming conversation about tomorrow. It's actually just for today. Did you notice the pattern? From relationship to security in relationship to worship to asking for the impossible to willing slavery and to request for our needs, now Jesus comes again and says, you know, no one comes into my dad's presence without talking about sin. It's impossible to walk into a holy God's presence and not have all the poison come to the surface. It's just impossible. Our Father, who's in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your, your kingdom come, your will be done down here as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily breads, bread and, and forgive us our, our debts. Our lives are marked by transgression, debt, trespass, iniquity, sin. The Bible uses all sorts of them. We've all missed the mark, all slipped away, all fallen aside in thoughts, in words, in deeds. We regularly and, vi- regularly and deliberately violate God's will and law. We trespass. We go to places where dad said we're not allowed to go. We have a debt to God and others we can never truly repay. And as one person said, sin really is just the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. So this prayer prayer invites us every single day into the spiritual discipline of confession. We, We need to walk in transparency. We don't need to hide from God anymore. Remember what I was teaching during the Christmas series? The very first thing that happened when we fell is we committed a cover up, and the result of the cover up is we hid from God. We don't need to do that as Christians anymore. Why? Because we've been covered by Jesus. There is no need to hide from God ever as a Christian because He is your what? Father. But he invites us every day to practice the discipline of confession. And like we know, spiritual disciplines are guaranteed places of transformation because it puts us in the place to meet with God and it confronts our continual preoccupation as human beings to hide, to be fearful, and to be owned by guilt and shame. And he says, no, no, as I walk with the Father, Jesus says, you get to walk with me. Every single day we're invited to claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from, and I love this little word, all unrighteousness. There is not one thing that we have done that is not on the body of Jesus. Can I say that again? There is not one thing we have thought or done that is not already on the body of Jesus. And since he's already taken care of it, there is no need to hide from God about anything because he's already dealt with it. He says, we regularly need to come, and as we ask for the will of God, as we learn to trust God and love God, as we learn to know him more as Father, as Jesus continues to transform us, he says, let me tell you, I want you to be relieved of the burden and debt you carry every single day. Don't make it like a New Year's resolution where you're like, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. No, no, you have to lose weight every day. How? Keep the confession going with God. Don't build up the weight of sin in your life. And then God comes closer and says, by the way, though, actually, 
in my kingdom, unlike the other kingdom, the more you experience forgiveness, the more you have to extend it to others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As God has done in your life and will do and will keep doing all the way through eternity because Jesus will perpetually cover you, God's forgiveness always comes first and then he moves us and says, would you do the same? Now I know every time I preach this, I walk into a landmine because I don't know what's sitting in the room. Is forgiveness a process? Of course it is. But does it need a beginning point? Yes, a decision has to be made. This prayer continues to move us to see what we've actually done to ourselves and others. It shows us even our inability or our lack of want to forgive. Yet here's the thing. You know what? God wants your freedom. God wants your joy, and he invites us through his power to forgive others. Remember, forgiveness is never forgetting. Forgiveness is not a lack of justice. And I need to say this strongly today. Forgiveness is not a lack of justice. See, some of us who have grown up in the church really believe that someone's going to get away with something. I want to reassure you that there is not one sin that has ever been committed that will ever be avoided or passed over. Can I say it? Will never be. Because either Jesus took the bullet for it on the cross and it's dealt with, or that will be dealt with on judgment day. Have you thought about that? No sin is avoided. No sin is passed over. No one gets away with anything. And that means there is justice in the end. And either Jesus took the bullet for that sin and through his forgiveness, that is forgiven. Or at the end of time, if someone does not trust in Jesus, they will face God in his holiness and he will deal with the sin. But here's the thing. So many of us say, well, I'm not going to forgive that person because they're going to get away with it. No, either Jesus has forgiven them or they will face it. Jesus wants your freedom. That's why he offers you the gift of forgiving others. Forgiveness is the declaration that we're giving up the right to hurt someone that actually hurt us. Forgiveness, as one said, is assuming personal responsibility for the emotional pain and the consequences of someone else's sin. Is forgiveness natural? Not on your life. Does it take time? Yes, it could take years. But you have to be in the posture of willingness Is forgiveness of another person radical? Yes. Is it a reflection of God's love towards us? Yes. Actually, God would say to us this morning that forgiving others is one of the most powerful expressions of his kingdom found in human beings. Now, Jesus is so significantly talking about this. He's so serious about this. He actually finishes what we call the Lord's Prayer or how he taught us to pray. And at the end of it, he says, you know what? I'm not done. And then he comes back to the subject and he says in verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sin, well, your father will not forgive your sin. Now let me help you understand this right so you don't start that you're wrong. This is not saying something like this. Well, I've I've sinned 10 times and so it's been bad. And so I've forgiven this other person five times, but I haven't forgiven the other five. Don't be like a mathematician or an engineer. I love you engineers, but this is not how you do this. This is not linear where you go, well, God has a calculator. He goes, well, you did five and you didn't do five, so I'll give you five, but the other five I won't forgive. No, no, that is such legalism. It has no life to it at all. This is what God is saying. God is saying, don't you understand? It's not about the amount 
Those people who truly have entered the kingdom of God and have truly begun to understand the extent of the forgiveness that God has given to us, we will forgive others. It is the evidence. You want to know if you're a Christian? Really? You really want to know if you're in the kingdom of God? You really want to know if he's your father? Look at your forgiveness life. Those who are forgiven in time, forgive. See, listen to this. I love how Mar- Scott McKnight said, he said, look, God has graciously forgiven us. Therefore, we are to forgive others to extend that grace. If we don't forgive others, and remember, this is in time, we show we're not forgiven. Forgiven people forgive others. But our forgiveness does not earn God's forgiveness. Let me say this again. God has graciously forgiven us. Therefore, we are to forgive others to extend that grace. If we don't forgive others, we're not forgiven. Forgiven people forgive other people, but our forgiveness does not earn God's forgiveness. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in 2015. Give us this day our daily bread in 2015, every single day. Forgive us our debts in 2015 as we begin and as we continue to forgive our debtors, those that really owe us something in 2015. And then Jesus, not done, says, and oh, by the way, he said, then says, look, and now lead me not into temptation. Now, some of you are going, is this saying that God is going to tempt me? No. Jesus' half-brother James got it right when he said, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Listen to the power of this. This is saying, God, you rescue me. God, you protect me. God, you intervene from me. See, temptation comes from us most of the time. Our natural inclination, the devil in the world, set up the environment for us to fall. And this is a real prayer where you keep praying, Oh God, you keep saving me from me. Now, what's also powerful about this, and I think I preached this in the summer, is this. Temptation can be good things and sinful things. As a leader, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a guy, as a Christian, regularly I say to God, would you keep closing doors that are actually good and godly and holy things that I cannot handle because I don't have the character yet? You keep You don't let me go down really good paths if it's going to end up actually bringing dishonor to Jesus, dishonor to my lovely wife. If I'm going to hurt my kids or I'm going to disgrace Jesus, you close the door I really want because I can't handle it and you're a good dad. So you got to do it because I'm still a little kid. Temptation also is, oh God, you know where I struggle. Just guard me from men and women in situations. I get me out now. You, I'm inviting you to show up and kick down the door and say, you're coming with me. You're coming home. 
And then he says this, not only temptation, then he ends by saying this, and deliver us, deliver me from the evil one. See, this is so significant. Jesus ends his kingdom prayer by asking us to ask him to rescue us from what? The other kingdom. He says, you get me out. You see, the temptation prayer is this. There's an old standardized Jewish morning and evening prayer that was prayed by Orthodox Jews in Jesus' day that gets it. It says, look, bring me not into the power of sin and not into the power of guilt and not into the power of temptation and not into the power of anything shameful. Get me out of temptation and deliver me from the evil one. Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against human beings. My fight's not with you. Your fight's not with me, whether you believe it or not. But against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I know I've preached this before. I'm going to do it again. The devil hates you so much. Whether you believe in his existence or not, or his fallen minions, oh, he is real and how he hates you. You are made in the image of God. Every human being, seven billion people on earth are made in the image of God. And every time a demon just sees a human being, they are enraged because each one of us reminds him that God is God and they are not. But it's worse for us or better for us because we're actually filled with Jesus. And every time a demon sees you, not only in the image of God, but filled with Jesus, they have a hate for you that I cannot describe in human language. They hate the church. They hate the scriptures. They hate all godliness. See, spiritual warfare happens every time we bring the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, in any form on earth because it's the reversal of their kingdom. Every time we serve the poor, every time we forgive someone, every time there's preaching, every time there's communion, every time we meet and, and we're loving towards each other, every time, every time we do the boring rote of Christianity, it is the reversal of their kingdom. They want to see C4 destroyed. They want to see me fall. They want to see pastors disgrace themselves. They want to see disunity on the elders board. They want you to turn on the church. They want you to turn on each other. They will do everything in their power to cause disunity between staff, elders, and the people in the community. Why? Because they know that we and other churches are the only ones. We are the only ones who know the person who can take all the people in Durham out of their hands into this kingdom. It's that real for them, and it's not that real for us yet. And Jesus says, I want you, though you are positionally good, I want you every day to acknowledge the war you're in, and I want you to ask the Ancient of Days to keep showing up as that amazing dad to get you out. And this is how they work in our lives. They ask you to doubt God's goodness. They accuse you of your sin, they bring up our struggles. They bring up our past. They point to all the things you don't have. And then they, they very carefully say, but look at that person over there. See how much they have? Obviously, God loves them so much more than he loves you. Are you sure you can trust the faithfulness and fatherhood of God? They come and they will attack your identity. They will systematically, whether you know it or not, will intentionally whisper or, or, or yell or infer. They'll even use other people, even other Christians. And this is what they'll say to you. You're not a saint. You don't have grace. 
You don't really have peace with God. You're not included with Christ. You're not blessed in the heavenly realms with, with spiritual blessings in Jesus, whatever that means. You're not seated with him in the heavenly realms. You're not chosen. You're not called for no one adopted. You're not a son or daughter of God. He's not your father. Look at your life. Look at how you think. Look how you struggle. You don't have redemption. You definitely don't have forgiveness. You're definitely not sealed by the Spirit. You definitely don't have eternal security. You're not God's possession. Actually, here's the truth. You're spiritually dead. And actually, you know what? You should just give in to sin. And for some of you, this is what they say to you. Actually, we're a better dad than he is. So if you let us in, we'll protect you. We'll keep you strong. We'll keep you safe. It will be okay with us because obviously he doesn't show up when he's supposed to. They'll say you're not saved by grace alone. Nope. They'll say God will only love you if you work really hard. To others of you, they will whisper you're garbage, you're nothing. And to others of you, they'll whisper the opposite. You're so amazing. You're so spectacular. You're like, why do you even need other Christians? Why do you even need to go to church? Do you really need it? Like, look at you. Magnificent. <laughs> they'll promote situations of bitterness Rage, anger, malice, unforgiveness, sexual immorality, uh, lying, a terrible speech. And they'll say, oh, it's, it's okay. You deserve it. You actually should do these things. It will bring blessing. And like I preach in the suburbs, sometimes they'll put crazy thoughts and struggles in your head that aren't natural necessarily to your walk or history. And then they'll say something like this. This is how insidious they are. They say, well, you thought it. So since you thought it, you obviously are that thing. So just give in. See, they skew temptation and sin because you're tempted doesn't mean you've done that thing, but they say, oh, it's the same thing. Just give in. That is why Jesus says, you better pray every day, deliver me from the evil one. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name in 2015. Your kingdom come, your will be done down here on earth as it is in heaven in 2015. And every day of 2015, I'm asking for daily bread. In 2015, forgive me my debts. There are going to be so many. And Lord, in 2015, for the first time or in process, help me to forgive those who really have debts that they owe. Oh God, lead me not into temptation. Lead me out of things that would bring you dishonor. Good, great, terrible, awful things. Don't let me fall. Oh, and Jesus, for me and my family in this church, even this region, oh, would you deliver us from the evil one? You know why this power, the prayer is so powerful? Because this prayer deals with pride, and this prayer deals with idolatry, and this prayer deals with forgiveness, and this prayer deals with pain. This prayer deals with all hiddenness, all secrets, and all hard-heartedness in the church. This prayer deals with evil at its root, and this prayer exposes us. And then this prayer heals us. And this prayer forces us into the light. And this prayer reminds all of us, none of us are God. And this prayer invites us and commands us to be reminded that we are actually slaves to God. This prayer confronts, uh, comforts us because it says he'll provide our needs. This prayer frees us of our past and the sins of other. This prayer outlines what reality really is. This prayer is a plea for the not yet to break into the now. And this prayer is a guaranteed place of transformation. And let me tell you why. Because if you're a Christian and you pray this, you're going to meet Jesus. The prayer isn't doing all these things. The one you meet when you pray it does. 
This prayer is nothing but an invitation to relationship, freedom, joy, faithfulness, worship, seeing heaven come to earth into your family, into this church, into this region. It's interesting, as the band comes to lead us in this last song, I want to give you a parting thought. Many people have come uh, in their connect groups lately, and I love the honesty and the authenticity in our community these days. And they said, you know, John, when you pray that prayer a lot from the front, you know, God, you can do anything for, for your glory, our freedom, so the world can see Jesus clearly. A lot of people come forward and say, you know, I, I, um, I'm still not praying that. And maybe I prayed it once, but I took it back. <laughs> but a lot of people, good, faithful, long-term Christians, you're still not praying it. And the, the interesting thing is, that's just an abbreviation of this prayer. That's all it is. I want to encourage us to trust God. And I want to encourage us as we start 2015. You know, Pastor Chris said it right. You know, it's the churchy thing to say, but we really believe it. We expect God to do things in 2015 we have never seen yet. But it starts here. And it starts there where we as a community say, you know what, Lord? No, really. No, really. No New Year's resolution. I don't want a new resolution. I just want to keep on doing what you've already called me to do. I want this in my head. I want this in my heart. I want this in me. I want this in my family. I want this in this church. And I want this in this region. This is renewal, by the way. This is revival. This produces awakening. Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Father, Holy Spirit, good dad, At this moment, we start 2015 as a church laying down everything that makes up this church. All the people, all the money, all the reputation, all the good, the bad, the ugly, everything that makes us up corporately and personally. We lay it down and we pray this. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name at C4. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth in C4 as it is in heaven. Give C4 daily bread. We need daily bread. Oh Lord, forgive C4. It's many debts. Oh Lord, lead C4 to forgive debtors. Oh Lord, lead C4 out of temptation. Oh Lord, Father, Dad, lead C4 out of temptation and deliver C4 in its entirety from every, the smallest baby in the womb to the oldest person among us. Deliver all of C4 from the evil one. Because yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.